At this time, let us open the Word of God once again. We're going to read two passages. We're going to read two passages. First, we're going to read from Romans chapter 3. And then we're going to read Psalm chapter 14. Romans chapter 3. And then Psalm chapter 14. In Romans, we read verses 9 through 20. 9 through 20 of this wonderful chapter of the Word of God. Listen very carefully. Our God speaks to us. Romans chapter 3, 9. What then? Are we any better than they? No, in no wise or no way. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Amen. Praise God for his truth there. And now turning in your Old Testament to the book of Psalms once again, as we have read and as we have sung so we go to read psalm chapter 14 once again listen carefully for our god speaks to us by his spirit the fool hath said in his heart there is no god they are corrupt they have done abominable works there is none that doeth good the Lord looketh, looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. 
You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Amen. People of God, once again, briefly, briefly, ever so briefly, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we ask that Christ would be glorified. That Christ would be glorified not only in the reading, but also now in the preaching of the gospel. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would sanctify our hearts. And we ask that you, by your Spirit, would overcome the weaknesses and the hard-heartedness of preacher and the weaknesses and the hard-heartedness of listener. And we ask that you would cause our hearts to be a soil which is conducive for the implanting of the Word of God. And we pray that the Word of God would be planted in our hearts and that the Word of God would bud and that it would spring forth and that it would grow and that it would grow in our hearts and we ask that through the ordinary means but these glorious means that you have given to us may your spirit bring about a harvest of righteousness over time we ask these things in the name of jesus our savior as we ask all of our prayers may they be in his name for his glory and for his sake in jesus name amen Young people, you may be into stories, you might be into movies or comic books that have good guys and bad guys. And there are good guys and there are bad guys in movies and books and things like that. But there are good guys and there are bad guys in many of the places in our world and throughout history there have been good guys and bad guys. Hundreds of years ago, there was a bad guy who rose up, and his name was Arius. And Arius began to say something that was very significant. He said, Jesus is not divine. He began to say that Jesus is like the Father, but he is not divine. He was a bad guy. Well, a good guy rose up. And his name was was Athanasius. And he began to dispute with this bad guy named Arius. And out of their conflict, there came a meeting of many preachers, many pastors. And they came together. And they argued and they disputed. And the good guys won. They beat the bad guys. And they put together a statement a statement which we now call the Nicene Creed. This this Nicene Creed was finished in 325. Ultimately, having been edited a little bit, was finally given to us in the form that we have it in 381. Why should we care about these things? It's important that we see that there are things that we believe 
And although it's not the Bible, it's not Scripture, it's a summary of what the Bible teaches. And therefore, we take the Nicene Creed, many Christians have for centuries, and they say, I believe in God the Father. And there are a number of things that they say about God the Father. And then they say, and we say with them, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, and of course we believe in the Holy Spirit. And as church history progresses over the centuries, we come to the 17th century. In the 17th century, another group of preachers and teachers comes together. They do so in a place in England and in Westminster. And they're called to come together for what they thought would be just a short time, but it ended up being about seven or eight years. And they debated and they discussed It's the Westminster Confession of Faith that we have, our larger and shorter catechisms. And I would argue that the Westminster Confession is nothing more than a further filling in of the details and a restatement of the Nicene Creed. As Christian believers in the Reformed and Presbyterian persuasion, we confess with the ancient church we confess with the 17th century with Christians for 2,000 years we say I believe in God the Father I believe in the Son of God the Lord Jesus Christ and I believe in the Holy Spirit and in a number of other things as well the church the resurrection the forgiveness of sin things that we've spoken about previously in this worship service why do i rehearse this for you is it simply because i just love church history in the last 2000 years well i do love the last 2000 years and i love learning about it and i love love uh, meditating upon it but my reasons for bringing this to you is uh, they're, they're more than this more than simply a great affection for previous centuries These things matter for now. We must continue to confess our faith together. But it is not only Christians who confess something, saying, I believe. We have a creed. But the unbeliever has a creed as well. But it is a creed not of belief, but it is a creed of unbelief. I don't believe. But that is not really the absence of belief. It is to say, I believe not in this, and then I believe in certain other things. So we have Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. And it says that the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That's what he says. That's what he believes. That is his creed. And notice where he says it. He says it in his heart. He says it from the deep inner part of his being. This is not something that he says because of all of his friends. They are saying it. This is not something that has only impacted his mouth. That his, this is something that 
begins to reach deep and impact his very heart. And out of the heart, our Lord Jesus says, the mouth speaks. And he says, there is no God. There is no God. But I want you to understand this. If you take nothing away, and if you remember nothing else, let me say, please remember this, that although many people will profess to be atheists, there are no atheists. And oftentimes, those who profess to, to, to be atheists, they harm the people of God. But God will deliver his people. That is what I want to put into your minds and into your hearts this day. That there are ultimately no atheists, though they may profess to be atheists. But those who do profess to be atheists do do great harm, oftentimes, to the people of God. But God is the rescuer of his people. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Let me just back up and just caution us for a moment. It is very important that when we understand that God calls people fools, God is not engaging in name calling. Young people, children you might understand, might be familiar with name calling. Your brother or your sister calls you a name and you call him or her something back and so back and forth it goes. And one of you tells your mother or tells your father. That's not what we're talking about. We are not to call people names simply to make them angry. This is not what God is doing here. God is not engaging in the childish practice of name-calling. God is describing people who know something to be true, but they say the opposite. Someone who knows something to be true and say the opposite, that is a foolish person. If I were to stand before you today, young people, if I were to stand before you and tell you that the drapes are closed, the lights are off, and the door is open, you'd say, that man is a fool. Because we all can see, we can all verify, we can look at the windows, we can look at the lights, and we can look at the doors. And that is really the case with those who profess to be atheists. They are saying that there is no God, but they know in their heart of hearts that there is a God. Romans 1.21 says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish, this is key, heart was darkened. See what this verse is saying? They know God. That's not to say that they know of a God. They know a God. They know God. And they're not thankful. 
There is no one more thankless than an atheist. For he says, what has God done for me? As his eyes are seeing, as his ears are hearing, and as he's breathing air, an atheist is one like a rebellious child who knows that God is good, but will not confess him, will not profess him. So they become vain in their imaginations. What is, what is that to say? They imagine something else, and ultimately to say there is no God is to say that I am God. They will not have God to rule over them. They will not have David to rule over them. They will not have great David's greater son to rule over them. They know it, but in their foolish hearts, they have darkened their own hearts. But yet they profess atheism, and by doing so, they profess themselves to be fools. In Romans chapter 1, 22, it says this, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That is exactly the case. Those who profess no God, who have there is no God in their heart as their creed, those who would do that, believe that they are wiser than the Christians, wiser than the psalmist. And so they would say, we know better. We're not like you. We're not tied to the past. We do not surrender our brains at the door of the church. These are the kinds of things they would say. We are wiser than you. But of course we understand that in the Bible, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Any atheist who comes and exalts himself must be very careful. Woe unto him who thinks that he stands lest he fall. But nonetheless, they continue. They continue to profess atheism. They continue to profess that there is no God. But you have not learned this. You have not learned Christ in this way. You have not learned God's truth in this way. Because the Bible tells us that if you want to have wisdom, you must begin with God. If you want to have wisdom, you begin with God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you want to be wise? Do you, have, do you want to have wisdom from on high? Then you confess the Lord as God. You confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You confess Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. You confess Him because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul tells us in Colossians 3.2. But God looks down into the earth according to our psalm. He looks down. He looks to see if there's anyone who is wise. 
Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. In a sense, it's like God is doing in Psalm chapter 14 what God does at the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, you understand that a supreme instance of Atheism takes place. There are all of the peoples, all of the nations who come together and they say, we will build for us a tower and we will build a tower that will uh, ascend to the heights of the heavens. And we will, through this, create a name for ourselves. And God says, this is simply a paraphrase, I will go down and I will look what they are doing. As if God did not know. But he condescends to us in language that we can understand and he says, I will go down and see what they are doing. And it's given to us in uh, Genesis chapter 11. God, in a sense, doesn't look down at a literal tower in Psalm 14, but instead, God just looks down upon the world and says, is there anyone good? Is there anyone righteous? Is there anyone who has knowledge or wisdom? And according to Romans chapter 3, he sees that there are none. He sees that all are foolish. Now in Romans chapter 3, especially we must understand the first three chapters of Romans, but in Romans chapter 3, Paul has built the case, he has made the case, that the Gentiles and the Jews are both sinful, both the Jews and the Gentiles. When he looks down upon them, he sees that there's no one righteous, no, not one. And Paul takes from Psalm chapter 14 and he plugs that into Romans chapter 3. And he takes from a number of other places in the word of God and he stacks all these verses and he says... No one's righteous, no, not one. There's no one good. They all have these filthy mouths and their throats are open graves, etc. And what is his point there? The case that he's making in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is that the Gentiles, the Gentiles are without God and they are sinful and there's no one who is good. They all begin to participate in perverted acts and disgusting things and worship of idols. Now, if you are a first century Jew and you're beginning to listen to or you're beginning to read the book of Romans, you're beginning to think, that's right, those dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking Gentiles. Those uncircumcised pig eaters, those lobster eaters, they're disgusting. And there is none who is righteous among them. 
But in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul does not only make the case that the Gentiles are sinful, but it's the Jews as well. And that is his conclusion, is it not? He makes the case that both Jews and Gentiles are faithless. This is what he says. What then? Are we, that is, Jews any better? No, in no wise or in no way. For we have before proved or we have before charged both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. And then the conclusion that he makes. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words... The Gentiles are condemned by the law. But do not be arrogant, Jews, because you are condemned by the law as well. The law of God, the Ten Commandments especially, are not something for you and I to use to prop ourselves up and say, well, at least I'm better than him, and at least I've done better than her. If you're truly understanding the law of God and understand the spirit with which it's given, then you understand that the law circumcises your heart and shows you your sin. And that is what the Apostle Paul says. With the law is the knowledge of sin. We come to understand that I'm no better and you're no better. We are all undone. If we would stand before God and say, These are the things that I've done. These are my righteous acts. I dare say that God would say, what is that smell? There's something that stinks. It's you. It's your filthy works that you've done without faith. And that is just it. The law must show us our sin that we might look outside of ourselves to one who is greater than us looking outside of ourselves to the Lord Jesus. Because with only the law, we are totally depraved. And that is exactly the doctrine that's being described there. Total depravity. We are totally depraved. We are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to do good that God finds acceptable apart from faith. So we call upon the cities and the states and the nations to confess Christ. And they will say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. And we must tell them, no, no. The law of God brings knowledge of sin. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Be converted. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the psalmist goes on, begins to talk about the way that the way that the atheists begin to harm the people of God. You might hear some people who have a philosophy that says, well, if people want to be unbelievers, if they want to be atheists, that's fine. Some would say, Live and let live. And others would say, well, live and let die. Similar philosophy. Just let them take care of themselves. And that's fine. There's something to that. But 
the problem is that so often the atheists, they begin to harm the people of God. That's exactly what happens. And that's what uh, the, the, the psalmist David even tells us. He says, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? And then this is the key. Who eat up my people as they eat bread? And call not upon the Lord. There were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor. Isn't that significant? It's one thing to let them live and let live. And we're certainly not seeking to force them, to harm them. But it is when they begin to eat up the people of God as with bread. That is to say, very rarely do you find an atheist who is content in his atheism. They must declare the good news, so-called the gospel of atheism. There is no God, therefore live as you like. But the problem is they do great harm. They do harm to the people of God. Sometimes exposing them to the filth of their degenerate minds. Sometimes committing outright murder. And although it's an idiom, it's just a figure of speech. There may be something to it at particular times to be eating up the people of God. Indeed. The atheistic mind is often so depraved that it will not stop at anything. It will stop at nothing to do harm. Even the sickest forms of disgusting things. And while the atheists will harm the people of God, well, they will do great damage. For the true Christian, as true Christians, we, we lament far more. We lament far more our own atheism. We lament far more the atheism that is still resident in our own own hearts we lament that far more than we do the buffeting of the wicked and the harm that they do we hate our own unbelief and we say with those who said to the Lord Jesus we believe but help thou our unbelief That is to say, give us faith. Give us a mustard seed of faith. But let it not continue to be a seed, but let it grow and let it fill us. And yet this side of eternity and this side of the resurrection and before our death, there is still a bit of atheism within each and every one of us. And it can grow. It can grow and grow. May we not give the devil a foothold. And may we continue to lament our own unbelief. And to lament it far more.
than even the buffetings of Satan and the wicked. And let us look to our God as our refuge. That is what we sang. Is it not the case? Psalm 46. May we see God as our refuge. And that is exactly what David says in Psalm 14. He says, you have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. And the Christian says, as much as they may shame me, I will make the Lord my God as my refuge. I will make him my strong tower. Because when I hide myself in my God as my tower, then the whole world can fall away. The whole world can come to pieces, fall apart at the seams. But I am safe in my God and my rock. I am safe in my Redeemer. We talked about total depravity, which is pictured for us in this psalm, which we're going to sing about very soon. They have all gone aside. They've become filthy. No one doeth good. None have knowledge, etc. It was a great act. A great act of atheism. It was a great act of atheism that pinned your Savior and mine to the cross. We must understand that that is about the most atheistic act anyone could ever do. Conduct to nail the Savior, the Lord of glory, to the cross. The Apostle Peter tells us this in Acts chapter 2. He says to some people, talk about being blunt and in people's face. He says, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Wicked men, the kind described for us in Psalm 14, rose up as false witnesses against the Savior, the only righteous one. They lied against him. And they brought him into sham faux trials. And they convicted him. And they sentenced him to death. And then they pierced him. But was God surprised by this? No, God was not surprised by this. The Bible tells us that this was by the determinate counsel of our God and Father. It was the foreknowledge of God which planned this to bring it into existence. Why? Because God enjoys making his son suffer. No, 
father was willing that his son should be abused by totally depraved and wicked men, Gentiles and Jews even. He did this because he loved you. And it was his plan that your law-breaking and your total depravity would be taken care of and, in a sense, nailed to the cross. But understand that it was not just the Father's will that this would happen, it was the Son's will. Do not think that there is in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the Trinity, some sort of disagreement wherein the Father says, yes, you must go, and the Son says, I do not want to go. Ultimately, our Savior entered into this world to suffer and die. And of course, He struggles in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, but that was not because he did not go willingly, but it was to bring his human will into conformity with his divine will. He did this to show grace to you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that might show the love of God the Father, that you might have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and by fellowship with the Holy Spirit, that you might have eternal, not just union, but communion and fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus came. Jesus came to set free the poor for the wicked shame, the counsel of the poor, Psalm 14, 7 says, The Lord will bring back the captivity of his people. It's interesting. David writes this, but he talks of captivity. If you know your Old Testament well enough, you think, does does David not understand his Bible? Yes, David understands his Bible. He writes of captivity, but captivity is not going to come Ultimately, until generations later, when the Babylonians will be risen up and they will take the children for 70 years. We say, that's captivity. And we say, no, no. Because of your sin, because of your rebellion, it doesn't matter where you live. If you live in Israel under David and Solomon, or whether you find yourself in exile in Babylon, You are captive to your sin. And Jesus comes to set captives free. And that is why Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, stands before a synagogue. And he begins to read. And he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Brothers and sisters, this is us. It's not the poor over there and the captives over there. It is you and me, captive to our sin, but made poor in spirit, that we might be made rich with the things of God and heavenly things. And Jesus, 
Jesus is good to his persecutors. He is good to them. And he says to them, Father, forgive them. He says to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here is the supreme instance of atheism, act of atheism. And here he is praying for them. He is interceding for them. And many who were his persecutors and many who were his haters are made his friends and made his brothers and his sisters. God has caused you to make a profession of faith. Professions of faith have been all along through history. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, uh, some say you're this person and that person, Jeremiah, prophet, John the Baptist, come back. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. A profession of faith. Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father in heaven has caused this to be. Peter's words are so contrary to the atheist. You're the Christ, the Son of God. We can say, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, but the wise. And Peter has said in his heart, you're the Christ, the Son of God. May we not be as those, the fools of this age, who deny what is right before their eyes, what testifies to them in the created order and in their morals and their consciences. And may we not seek to, in our hearts, testify against God's perfect and glorious holy word. Because, people of God, if you have cast your cares upon the Lord, including your greatest care, that of where you will spend eternity, then we would say that God has given you wisdom from on high. And the Apostle Paul tells us that God has given to us wisdom. And in Corinthians 1.30, we close with this. 1 Corinthians 1.30. God has given to you wisdom. And how is that wisdom defined? It is defined as righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of him, that is of Christ, are, uh, but of God are you in Christ, who of God has made us wisdom, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is to say, what does wisdom look like? We hope that it is the proper use of the things that God has given to us. Amen. But wisdom is also found in justification. That is righteousness. That is God who calls you 
declares you, indeed, in a sense, makes you righteous, not through any righteousness of your own, but by faith in Christ. And sanctification or holiness and also redemption. That is to say, justification, sanctification, and redemption. You are guilty and God has acquitted you. You are unholy and he has made you holy and he is making you holy. And you are in debt by your sin. And God has paid your debt in Christ. And he continues, 1 Corinthians one thirty one, and we end here. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let you, may, may you not glory in atheism. Look what atheism does. It's eat, it eats up the children of God. It eats up the Son of God by piercing him. May we not boast in our atheism. May we boast in our Savior. May we boast in Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who has loved our souls and has done far more for us than we could ever imagine. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we bless you for mercy and grace. We bless you for wisdom and for justification, righteousness, sanctification, holiness, and redemption, purchasing. And we thank you that you have given to us grace and glory, and you have given to us every every heavenly thing and every heavenly gift in Christ. We pray, O Heavenly Father, that we would hate all which is contrary to you, even in our own hearts and our minds. And may we have an increasing love for God and an increasing love for our Savior and an increasing sense of your Spirit's presence among us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.